podcast for the true crime and paranormal lovers alike. Uh, Every week I'll be bringing you true crime cases and paranormal cases. I will discuss, give you information, talk about it a little bit, and then I'll throw this little podcast out into the universe and let you guys listen for yourselves. So hopefully my voice is easier to listen to and I'm not too much of a pain. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Hayley and I will be your host for this little podcast. Just a little bit of housekeeping before I start. Uh, Please excuse all of the noises in the background, paper turning, little things in my voice, little things in the way I talk, Uh, uh, anything really. There is going to be some noises in this podcast because unfortunately my little setup is not completely established yet and I still have a few things I need to get before this will work better. So I'm really sorry about that. Also, I'm really sorry if I mispronounce or I trip over my own words or anything because I'm very new to this despite me listening to a lot of podcasts myself and I'm trying my best. So I'm really, really sorry. Hopefully you can bear with me with all of this and you enjoy this episode anyway. So I'll stop rambling and I'll get into it. This one is a true crime one. So it'll be little bit of murder, a little bit of stalking, a little bit of all of that stuff. So hopefully you guys enjoy it and here goes. Lucian Carr, born the 1st of March 1925 to Marion Howland and Russell Carr in New York City. His childhood was fairly alright, nothing too earth shattering or anything happened up until the age of five. Unfortunately in 1930, His parents decided to separate and he and his mother moved back to St. Louis where he spent the remainder of his childhood. Pretty normal, nothing too bad, I guess. But at the age of 12, Lucian met somebody who would change his life in more ways than one. David Kramer, an English teacher from Washington University in St. Louis, was to become completely obsessed with Carr when the two first met while Kramer was leading a Boy Scout troop that Carr was a member of. For five years, Kramer followed Carr wherever he went. Wherever the young man was enrolled in school, Kramer would show up. From the University of Chicago to the Academy of Andover in Massachusetts to Bowden College in Maine, Kramer would follow Carr wherever he went. Carr would later insist that Kramer was hounding him sexually in such a way that by today's standards, would be considered stalking. So there's a tiny bit of stalking going on here. Carr would also insist that they never had sex and would only socialise occasionally. This would also be believed and spoken about by one of Kramer's oldest friends, William Burroughs. The Burroughs family also knew the Carr family from back in St. Louis as they were both fairly high up in society and were quite wealthy. Uh, The stay at the Chicago University was short, however, which is where he ended up. Uh, as Carr, in a suicide attempt that he deemed a work of art, was found with his head in an oven. This landed him in the psychiatric ward at the Cook County Hospital for two weeks and then was, by his mother, moved to New York and enrolled into Columbia to be closer to her at all times and also a way of getting him away from Kramer, which unfortunately didn't last very long because it wasn't long before Kramer packed up, quit his job and moved to New York to follow Carr. Burroughs also moved to New York as well and remained friends with Kramer. 
It was at Columbia where Carl would befriend Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, two fairly famous names. Hopefully anybody who listens to this recognises them. Allen Ginsberg is a very famous poet. I do suggest looking him up. And Jack Kerouac is, again, a very famous poet and very famous writer who wrote On the Road. Hopefully someone's read it. It's a great book. If you haven't, please read it. It's awesome. With these two, plus the help of Burroughs, the Beats were born. So basically, the beat poets of the 40s were these guys wanting to start a literary revolution, wanted to fuck around with society, wanted to make their mark, wanted to do whatever they wanted to do, so they decided to start a literary revolution. Don't know. I think it was a good idea, I suppose. So Carr, with the helps of the beats, created a new vision. A new vision included these principles. Naked self-expression is the state of creativity. The the artist's consciousness is expanded by the derangement of the senses. Art eludes conventional morality. So, really, a lot of drugs, a lot of stuff they probably shouldn't have done. But it's a revolution, I guess. You do what you have to do. (laughs) I don't know. Um... For 10 months, however, Kramer was on the outskirts of the group, occasionally being indulged by Carr and being ignored by the rest. Still infatuated with Carr, this this complete of thing of being ignored didn't stop him from doing what he needed to do to get anywhere near him. His mental state was clearly decaying when he was found to have crawled into Carr's room to watch him sleep, only to be caught by a guard when he was crawling back out of the window. On another occasion, Burroughs found him trying to strangle Jack Kerouac's cat. Quick side note, probably not the greatest way to get somebody's attention, but it's attention-grabbing anyway, so I don't know. I, I mean, if I was obsessed with someone and I wanted to get to them, I wouldn't strangle somebody's cat, but I suppose you've got to do what you got to do. On July of 1944, Carr and Kerouac had begun discussing sailing out on a merchant merchant ship when Kramer found this out unfortunately it sent him into a massive panic and he feared that he would lose Carr forever on August the 13th 1944 Carr and Kerouac attempted and failed to ship out of New York to France on a merchant ship aiming to fulfill a fantasy of walking across France in character as a Frenchman and his deaf mute friend and hoping to be in Paris in time for the allied the allied liberation Kicked off the ship by a first mate at the last minute, the two men drank together at the Beats regular bar in the West End. Karak was the first to leave and was stopped by Kramer, who asked where Carr was. Kerouac did tell him where Carr was, which not the greatest friend. If you knew what was happening, if it was very apparent that this was a stalking case, you wouldn't tell the stalker where the stalk E is. So, don't know, not the greatest friend in the world, but I don't know, that's just me, I guess. Kramer caught up with Carr at the West End and the two went for a walk, ending up in Riverside Park on Manhattan's Upper West Side. According to Carr's version of the night, he and Kramer were resting near 115th Street when Kramer made yet another another sexual advance. Carr said when he rejected, Kramer assaulted him physically and being larger, gained the upper hand. In desperation and in a panic, Carr stabbed the older man using a Boy Scout Scout knife from his St. Louis childhood. Then he tied his assailant's hand and feet, wrapped Kramer's belt around his arms, 
weighed the body down with rocks and then dumped it in the Hudson River nearby. Carr then went to the apartment of William Burroughs, gave him Kramer's bloody pack of cigarettes, explained the accident to him. Accident. Burroughs flushed the cigarettes down the toilet, told Carr to get a lawyer and turn himself in. But instead of doing that, Carr sought out Kerouac with the aid of Abe Green, helped him dispose of the knife and some of Kramer's belongings before the two of them went to a movie and the modern museum of art. Uh, to look at paintings so I don't know I was <laughs> sounds fairly innocent until you know what's happening I suppose Carr finally then went to his mother's house then to the office of the New York district attorney where he confessed although the prosecutors didn't exactly believe him and didn't even believe that the crime had occurred but they kept him in custody until they recovered Kramer's body Carr then identified the corpse and then led the police to where he had buried Kramer's eyeglasses on the morning side park. So didn't reclaim his innocence for too long, actually did the right thing and turned himself in, which is good. Kerouac was arrested as a material witness, as was Burroughs. Burroughs' father posted bail, but in the famous bedside story, Kerouac's father refused to post the $100 bond to bail out his son. In the end, Edie Parker, Jack Kerouac's partner's parents, posted bail only if he agreed to marry their daughter. With the detectives serving as witnesses, Edie and Jack were married in the municipal building. After his release, he moved, he moved to Chicago, where Edie was born. Their marriage was unfortunately annulled in 1948. Carr was then charged with second-degree murder. The story was followed closely by the press, involving, as it did, a well-liked, gifted student from a prominent family, New York's premier university, and scandalous whiff of homosexuality. The coverage embraced Carr's story of obsessed homosexual preying on an appealing heterosexual younger man who finally lashed out on self-defence. The Daily News called the killing an honest slaying, an early example of the gay panic defence. If there were subtle shadings to the tale of Carr's five-year saga with Kramer, the newspaper completely ignored them. Carr pleaded guilty to first-degree manslaughter, and his mother testified at the sentencing hearing about Kramer's predatory habits. Carr was then sentenced to a term of one to 20 years in prison. He served two years in the Elmera Correctional Facility in upstate New York and then was released. After his prison term, however, Carr went to work for United Press, which later became United Press International, where he was hired as a copy boy in 1946. He remained on good terms with his friends, served as best man when Kerouac married Joan Haverty in 1950 in November. Carr has sometimes been credited with having provided Kerouac with a roll of teleprint paper from the UP offices, which Kerouac then wrote the first entire draft of On the Road in a 20-day marathon fueled by coffee, speed, and marijuana. The scroll was real, but Carr's share in his first draft tale is probably a consultation of two different episodes. The 119-foot roll first, first roll, which Kerouac wrote in 1951, was actually many different large sheets of paper trimmed down and taped together. After Kerouac finished the first version, he moved briefly into Carr's apartment on 21st Street, where he wrote the second draft in May on a roll of United Press teleprinter. 
and then transferred that work to individual pages for his publisher. Carr remained a diligent and devoted employee of UPUPI in 1956 when Ginsberg's Howl and Kerouac's On the Road were about to be national sensations. Carr was promoted to night editor. Leaving behind his youthful exhibitionism, Carr became came to cherish his privacy. In one, one well-noted gesture, Carr asked Ginsberg to remove his name from the dedication at the start of Howl. Ginsberg agreed. Carr became, even became a voice of caution in Ginsberg's life, wanting him to keep the hustlers and the parasites at arm's length. For many years, Ginsberg would visit the UPI offices and press Carr to cover the various causes which Ginsberg had allied himself. Carr continued to serve as Kerouac's drinking buddy, a reader and a critic, reviewing early drafts of Kerouac's work and absorbing Kerouac's growing frustrations with the publishing world. Married in 1952 to Francesca Van Hart, the couple had three cup, three children, Simon, Caleb and Ethan. Uh, Ethan, uh, sorry, Caleb, in 1994, Caleb published The Alienist, a novel which became a bestseller. So if you've ever heard of that, that's Lucian's son, Caleb. They divorced and then he later married Sheila Johnston. Lucian Carr spent 47 years his entire professional career with UPI and went on to head the journal news desk until his retirement in 1993, the year I was born. If he was famous as a young man for his flamboyant style and outrageous vocabulary, he perfected an opposite style as an editor and nurtured the skills of brevity in the generations of young journalists whom he mentored. He was off. He was often. He was known for his often repeated suggestion. Why didn't you just start with the second paragraph? Carr was reputed to have a strict, acceptable standards for a good lead. His mantra being make him laugh, make him cry, make him horny, or other variations of this. Carr died at Washington University Hospital in Washington in January of 2005 after a long battle with bone cancer. So, what do you think? So an honest slaying, from what I remember, I did a little bit of research on this one last night, an honest slaying is basically a killing of someone in a family or a friend of yours who would then bring dishonour to the family, to friends, to anything like that. So in the gay defence panic or the gay panic defence, basically the way that it seemed to have gone is they tried to use the fact that uh, Kramer was definitely homosexual and Carr uh, alluded to the fact that he was completely heterosexual um, and used the honest laying as a way to lessen his sentence. But unfortunately, uh, that honest laying didn't really work and uh, was sensationalised by the, the news, but it was never actually used as a defence. But he only got two years, obviously, and then was released. So... Uh, yeah, not, not fun, not the greatest way to get rid of somebody that's stalking you, but at the same time, job well done, I guess. Um, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I actually managed to get through this entire thing without it sounding like complete garbage. So hopefully it's not too bad. Um, 
I'm not 100% sure on what I'm doing next week, but I do have an Instagram, um, at Killer Haunts. Um, so I will be posting little, uh, photos and stuff about this case. I'll post the newspaper clipping and a few little different things, photos of everybody involved as well. So if you want to check that out, that's Killer Haunts on Instagram. Facebook page is coming. Um, everything else is coming. Hopefully that will be up and running soon. All the links and stuff will be in the episode, uh, details and yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed that and I hope you guys have a wonderful day, afternoon, evening, morning, wherever you guys are listening from. So thank you very much and I will speak to you soon.